This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Recently, there was a discussion on the uh, Lay Zen Teachers Association uh, listserv about the subject of money. Now, that's always a uh, fraught subject, even among Zen teachers. I always remember my first year of uh, psychoanalytic training, a supervisor said to me, in this business, you can ask a patient the most intimate details of their sex life, and they'll tell you all about it. But if you ask them, how much money do you have? They'll recoil and say, hey, that's personal. And I think that's... uh, that still remains uh, true as a kind of uh, taboo in many circles. And so it was interesting to see the Zen teachers uh, try to uh, discuss it openly. However, the trend of the discussion even though this was, uh, as I say, a discussion among lay teachers, not monastics, is everyone wanted to adopt a um, attitude or a stance of showing how simply they lived and what they could do without. And, you know, this one was, was trying to live off the grid or uh, this one making do on very little income, Uh, somebody uh, started quoting Thoreau uh, and, you know, much to the effect of a measure of a man's wealth is how much he can live without, things like that. Uh, Generally, I thought they were trying to out-monk each other, you know, and sort of talking about simplicity. So at some point I chimed in and said that I too was a great admirer of uh, Thoreau. In fact, fact, I had a first edition of Walden. Now that's not, uh, you could say, a very Thoreauvian thing to own. Uh, Although I bought it a long time ago, you know, nowadays that, that book is probably uh, worth, you know, equivalent of a small car. Uh, And so the question is, what am I doing owning a thing like that? And I think it's a broader question of what does it mean to uh, be a middle-class Buddhist? Is that a hypocritical thing in itself or a contradiction in terms. 
And what I've been trying to suggest in a lot of ways is that we're trying to integrate practice as honestly as we can into the life we're actually living and not live as if uh, we're always failing to more uh, completely imitate a monastic life uh, or that that's the, the model to which we are always supposed to aspire to. We try to practice from the idea that impermanence and interdependence exists everywhere all the time in whatever way we live. We're always going to bump up against that. And that determines that life is always going to be teaching us those two things. And that in one sense, you could see things like having wealth or security as a resistance against impermanence or dependence. And in some way, life will always be uh, trying to teach you that lesson. But in another sense, we're trying to stay honest about how we live and how we're trying to integrate practice into the life we actually have. And I think that in many ways, what we're doing is what it says in the meal chants. May we exist like a lotus at home in muddy water. We live in the muddy water of everyday life and the particularly muddy water of, uh, of capitalism. And we have to, in some way, adapt to that ecology. Uh, we're not attempting to be a water purification project. It's going to rid the water of the mud of capitalism once and for all by the way we live our lives or run our community. One way or another, we're going to have to exist within it. And that existence includes the other meal chant where we say 72 labors brought us this food. We should know how it comes to us. We should stay aware of the chains of labor and money and the economy and inequality and exploitation that are the inevitable background of what, of how we live. And we do what we can through our awareness to ameliorate them. In some way, we're always in the business of trying to live a relatively sane life in a uh, relatively insane world.
Now, one solution to that is essentially trying to drop out of that world and live a, a life of purity in an impure world. And monasticism in many traditions is conceived of that way. But nobody really can drop out of the world. If you look at the history of Zen monasticism or residential centers in America, their founding was always dependent on the donation of from the rich. You might say, behind every monk was a millionaire, right? In order to live a life of no possessions and simplicity and uh, practice, some millionaire's money built the temple. Donations continue to keep it going. And it's not so clear to me that uh, living your simple life is the result of the donations of somebody else's labor is inherently a, a more pure life than doing the work yourself and earning the money yourself and trying to integrate your life into practice. And one of the things that... Uh, some sense by necessity, since I'm not uh, very good at uh, soliciting donations from millionaires. Uh, one of the ways ordinary mind has always existed is to be really uh, dependent on membership dues. that it was a member-supported organization. We were able, you know, in the first few years, I basically supported the Zendo by giving it free space in my office. But gradually, we're just trying it in order to make the, the Sangha uh, larger, have its own dedicated space. Uh, we try to keep things going just from the dues, from what people themselves are able to contribute. And while the model for most uh, lay centers is uh, like what we have in uh, Philadelphia, where Pat welcomes the Sangha into her home a few days a week. Most lay teachers do some version of that. Very hard for Sanghas to support a separate space without some big outside donation. But uh, when I talk to other lay Zen teachers, uh, you know, I realize that Having a zendo that we keep open six days a week, sitting mornings and evenings, having a resident. Uh, this is uh, far more intensive practice and far more 
availability of practice that most lay groups can afford. And we do it because members have made it possible, not because we've had big donations. But it's a kind of hybrid experiment that we, you know, have kept running in a ever-evolving form for now uh, something like 25 years. I think the kinds of compromises we make in being lay middle-class Buddhists who are not trying to, you know, just wait till the day when they can go off to the monastery and do the real thing, means that we really try to come to terms with the world we're embedded in and are part of. Looking at uh, Kyogen's uh, article this week about taking a stand, it was interesting to me how what's sort of started off as a essay about should Zen centers or Zen teachers take political stands sort of morphed into a discussion of how do we as individuals not practice in order to try to expel parts of ourselves? It's practice trying to recognize and accept all parts of our inner world. And that flows into trying to make our peace with being part of a complicated outer world, a whole society then we're not trying to set ourselves off as simply the, the pure elements in an impure world and set up that oppositional dualism. Everything would be okay if everybody just lived like me. Right? And Kyogen was uh, known for trying to maintain interfaith dialogues, including with, you know, some very conservative evangelical types, not, not get into this kind of demonization of the other that mostly just serves to reinforce our own sense of rightness and goodness. It made me think of the writer Wendell Berry who uh, was often asked, how come you're not a vegetarian? How come you've written all these books and essays extolling the life of simple farmers in Kentucky who mostly were growing tobacco? And Barry basically said, This is the world I've inherited. This is the world I live in. And I want to try to promote 
an awareness where food comes from, how it comes to us, what our relationship is to the land, what our relationship is to other animals, how we are dependent on them and them on us. And that relationship can be based on care and respect, even as we acknowledge that we raise these animals as part of our being animals ourselves, that all living involves killing, that there's no escaping that kind of cycle, and that the point is rather to be as mindful and respectful of it as you can, and not try to bootstrap yourself into a place of purity. And yes, tobacco farmers contribute to something that may be very unhealthy in society. But we have to find the right way to transition out of that. That these small farmers represent generations of a way of living on the land that has much to admire about it. They live in the kinds of interconnected communities of mutual support that most of us only dream of. And yes, people need to deal responsibly with the product they grow and perhaps help them transition into doing something else. But they're not overnight all going to turn into uh, organic farmers and to be sweep them off the land will probably only result in the consolidation of agribusiness uh, factory farms. And so we, we don't want to get into a position of the perfect becoming the enemy of the good. The lotus grows in the mud. And if we want to cultivate that lotus, we're not doing it in a pure hydroponic uh, artificial environment. We're trying to do it in the world that we live in, in the world that in large part is we've inherited, that it's not of our creation. We live in a generation that faces the possibility of uh, great ecological collapse from climate change, from the degradation of uh, the biodiversity and uh, different environments. We don't know the extent to which any of our actions are going to be able to uh, reverse that. Some people in LZTA, for instance, said we should stop having annual meetings where people fly across the country to see each other. That's a luxury that people can't afford. We should just do everything on Zoom. 
jet fuel is destroying the planet. Maybe. That's something people can uh, discuss if they want to. Of course, you know, LZTA not flying a couple dozen people to its annual meeting is not going to uh, reverse climate change. Does it make a difference if we are models for giving up air travel? I don't know. Somehow we're going to have to live in a world of lots of consequences that uh, we can't control and can't reverse. And we're going to have to figure out what does it mean to try to live well or sanely in a world that, uh, as in the Philip Whalen poem, uh, is going to hell in a handbasket. I don't have the answer to that. But I think what we're trying to practice is a kind of uh, emotional honesty, not resort to um, pursuits of purity as a way to deal with our confusion or helplessness. To be honest about how we live and what we value. And practice in the midst of the life we actually live. <laughs>